There's a lot of talk about freedom right now. How long will it be before we're free to socialize, free to travel, free not to wear a mask? But aren't these rather thin ideas of freedom? Having not experienced slavery, do we take freedom for granted? And how many of us would be willing to accept the sacrifices that would be involved in being genuinely free of social norms and expectations? What anyway are the conditions of human freedom? These are among the questions which came to me reading an evocative and powerful book by today's guest on Bridges to the Future. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. I'm delighted to be joined by the journalist, author, filmmaker, Sebastian Junger. He's recently published a book which is part travel journey, part philosophical inquiry. It's entitled simply Freedom. Sebastian, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's an absolute delight. And I have to say to you, this is a challenge, this conversation we're going to have for me, because I read a lot of books for this podcast. I think we're on about 120. And you know, they're great. And it's always an honor to read a book and to talk to the author. But I do sometimes have a kind of sinking feeling when I read a lot of these books, which is I've read the first chapter. And I kind of know what the argument is now. And it feels like I'm going to spend a lot of time having that same argument hammered into my head. Your book is completely different. When I read it, I just fell into a kind of reverie. And, and by the end of it, I stopped reading and I had to kind of reorientate myself. I'd become so deeply and fully engrossed in it. So it's a wonderful book. I'm a very happy man to be able to read it to do this podcast. But it poses a challenge. And the challenge is, it's not like those other books. There isn't a single idea. It's quite elusive, the ideas in it, the, the way that, that notions weave in and weave out. So, Sebastian, I'm going to do my best in this interview, because what I tend to do is to fit a book into a 35-minute podcast is to reduce it. And your book is, it can't be reduced. So you'll just have to forgive me as I kind of stumble through this. And I I'll start with a very basic question, which is the structure of the book. So the book is partly the story of your walk over several hundred miles with a group of people, I think, changed. You didn't do all the walk all at once, but over a period of time through the kind of northeastern part of America, along railroad tracks. And interspersed with the account of that walk and what you see and what you experience are a set of philosophical musings on the nature of of freedom. So why did you choose to write it in this way, Sebastian? So let me just jump in right off the bat and to say that philosophy itself, I find very intimidating. And I put a lot of my own thinking into what freedom means and how one gains it. A lot of those sections are really a matter of historical inquiry or scientific inquiry, just to be clear. Um, yeah, I'd, call, I'd call it everyday philosophy, especially not professional philosophy, perhaps, but everyday philosophy. I like that. Okay, good, good. So basically, about 10 years ago, was with a few friends, I walked along the railroad lines, active railroad lines, from Washington, D.C., up to Philadelphia, up the East Coast to Philadelphia, and then we turned west and headed for Pittsburgh. It was about 400 miles. We walked along the railroad lines that are, you know, obviously active. They're owned by freight companies and rail companies. It's illegal. The cops were looking for us. Once they were looking for us with a helicopter, we managed to evade them 
We chose the railroad lines because they are these swaths of no man's land that crisscross America. And there's really nobody out there. You can do whatever you want. We were sleeping under bridges and in abandoned buildings. We were cooking over fires in the woods. We were getting our water out of creeks and we were avoiding the authorities. So it gave us this sort of like sense of almost sort of getting away with something. We were on, along the edges of society. We weren't in the wilderness. We were definitely part of American society, but at its edges, right through the ghettos, through the, through the farms, through the wealthy suburbs, through the woods. And as I say in the book, over the course of around 400 miles, most nights we were the only people in the world who knew where we were. And that there are many definitions of freedom, of course, but surely that's one of them. So I used the narrative of that trip. I kept notes during the trip. We called it high-speed vagrancy. We, we were carrying everything we needed on our backs. We moved 10, 15, 20 miles a day. And I kept notes because I'm a writer and that's what I do. I never thought I would ever write a book about it, but I always write things down. And then fortunately later, as I started to write about the topic of freedom, I thought back to this amazing trip. And I thought maybe I could incorporate some of that trip into the, the research I was doing into how people in the last 10,000 years, how groups of humans have maintained their, their autonomy in the face of larger, more powerful foes. I noticed towards the end of the book, there's a, there's a kind of musical quality to it in the sense that there's a kind of rhythm and the rhythm is the walk. And then there's the melody and the melody is the historical, philosophical musings. And there's three movements to it as well, in a classic symphonic form. So let's look at those movements one by one. Was that intentional, by the way, Sebastian, that kind of, that symphonic quality? I wish I was as erudite as you are. And then I would have, and I could happily say, yes, it was intentional. But unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm not. I, I mean, what, but what I would say is that in sort of writerly terms, uh, books need a narrative and they need research. And the narrative that I provided was our trek. And I know that people have a, an attention span or will indulge you. The people, readers will indulge you in a topic that they maybe aren't necessarily interested in for maybe a thousand words or so. I mean, that's sort of the limit of what you can get away with. And if you're really asking someone to read about something that they didn't know they were going to be reading about in your book, for example, the history of the Apache and how they maintain their freedom in the American Southwest. So what I would try to do is alternate sections of around 800,000 words about the track. And then I would go into these sort of bodies of research about how humans in the last 10,000 years have maintained their their autonomy. And what I realized is that we, we do it in three main ways. The first and most obvious way to maintain your, your freedom in the face of a more powerful foe is to be more mobile than they are, to run away. And that's how the Apache did it. They were a very materially poor, very mobile society in the American Southwest. And when the Spaniards showed up in the late 1500s, the much wealthier Pueblo tribes that had agriculture, irrigation, they lived in towns. The Pueblo tribes didn't have a chance against the Spaniards and were dominated almost immediately. The Apache remained free for another 300 or so years, almost until 1900. My grandmother was born in 1900, so almost to within the lifetime of a person I knew very, very well. And they did that by being very mobile. The Apache warriors were expected to be able to run 70 miles a day, 7-0, 70 miles a day, over 100 kilometers a day, day after day in rough terrain, they could outmaneuver U.S. cavalry. 
everyone else was expected to be able to do, you know, half that, including, you know, older people and children. So they were very fit, very athletic people. And that was how they maintained their freedom. If you can't outrun your oppressor, you're going to have to outfight him. So this notion of running for freedom, which I felt was kind of connected to notions of of coming off the grid, of new frontiers, of, of kind of escaping from forms of normality or of power. And that's such an important part of the kind of of American folklore, of American culture. And, you know, it's interesting that the film Nomadland, which won so many awards, is a form of that. That's about a group of people, they have no choice. But in a sense, the the brilliance of that film is that in some ways, it's a story about people in terrible poverty, but it's also a story of freedom. It's also a story of people choosing to get out of the system, as it were. But yet, Getting free, running out, running away is becoming more and more hard for everybody, whether it's surveillance or urbanization. There's very few and wild places to go anymore. So is this notion of freedom, which you talk about, you you say that you felt free on your walk because you were the only people who knew you were there. Well, as I say, in this world of the internet and social media, it's very hard for anybody to ever be anywhere where other people don't know where they are. So is this notion of freedom just eroding? Well, people live in societies and, you know, we could maintain that kind of life off and on for a year, but we couldn't really live that way. So there's two main concepts here. One is how does a society maintain its freedom in the face of of another society that wants to oppress it? And then the other question, important question, is how does the individual maintain their freedom within their own society? Now, what we realized when we were walking out along the railroad lines was that everything we were carrying and the food we were eating was all coming from the society that we were supposedly free from. But, you know, very quickly you realize maybe you're sort of like absent without leave for a little while, but we are all completely dependent on this society in material terms, in sheer survival terms. We are utterly dependent on Western society for our basic needs and and safety. And so there is no complete autonomy for the individual in that sense. And that's where more interesting conversations about less physical ideas about freedom. So, okay, we're dependent on the society, but how do we maintain our rights? And the difference between freedom and rights is a very important one that we can talk about. But still this this kind of the notion of the wilderness, the notion of being able to get away from the system, am I wrong in saying that that is an incredibly important part of the kind of American collective imagination and that, in a sense, one's ability to do that, which goes right back to the frontier, it feels for me, and I don't think it's the same at all in Britain, we're a very overcrowded little island, we don't have that same sense of the need to be able to get out, get away. Well, yes. I mean, the history of this country, of the United States, you know, starting in you know, the 1600s, was that there was always this unknown place, the frontier, where you could go to and sort of lose yourself. And you were indeed free from the oversight of the colonial government or the U.S. government, free from the oversight or the, you know, frankly, sometimes the oppression of the church. But here's the trade-off. You can't be completely free and completely safe at the same time. Your safety comes from society. It comes from being part of a group. So when settlers, or for that matter, when someone goes into the Alaskan wilderness on a, on a pair of snowshoes and decides to rid themselves of the, you know, the bonds of society and be free, uh, I mean, they're, they're engaging in something that's enormously dangerous. And the more people they do this journey with, the safer they're going to be. And so what the settlers realized very quickly, and this was particularly true in Pennsylvania that we walked through along the Juniata River, 
which was a major corridor of westward movement in the 1700s for people in colonial America. What they found is that when they went into what was called Indian territory, they were at enormous risk of being attacked, and they could survive those attacks if they went in groups. And those groups basically required that every individual be willing to fight to the death to defend the group. And if you weren't willing to do that for the group, you weren't welcome in the group. So the people in those groups were free from the church, from society, the broader society, from the colonial government, but they were not free from each other. They could not survive out there by themselves and out there in the howling wilderness. They had to abide by the norms of the little community that they had gone out there with. And so, in other words, you're always loyal to something. And it's a question of what is it you want to be loyal to? So that takes us to the second movement of the symphony, which is the notion of fighting and fighting for freedom. And this put me in mind of one of your other very fine books, Tribe, because this is what I felt was a big part of this argument was that we're only free in groups. And there is this point that you make that if you're in one group, you're not in other groups. And and that takes me to the kind of the concept of solidarity, which is a concept that I use quite a lot in my work. And I've written about solidarity, that deep need in us for connection, for belonging, for being part of something bigger than ourselves. And I've described it as being the, the best of us and the worst of us, because it is the thing which drives us to other regarding behavior, to enormous sacrifice. It, it connects us in some ways to the, the kind of transcendent that you get in the group. But also, of course, it's the foundation for tribalism, for bigotry, for racism. And you capture that in this kind of idea. We have to fight for our freedom, but we're also continuously, apparently, wanting to trammel other people's freedom, our group against another group. Yeah, I mean, aggression, organized armed aggression is obviously adaptive and benefits the aggressor or it wouldn't be so prevalent in human history. It would have died out. So the question is, how do you defend yourself from a group that would attack you? The word freedom comes from the uh, Middle German vridom, V-R-I-D-O-M, which means beloved. Okay, And it has that root because the original idea of freedom was only the people closely around you, your family, your clan, your tribe, your community, only they were ineligible for slavery or abuse or murder. But anyone else outside of the community was fair game. So 5,000 years ago, a very warlike group called the Yamnaya on the Eastern Steppe, they used horse-drawn chariots in combat back when the horse was sort of new to human society. And they traveled in all male groups. They fought with battle axes. They were sort of the first motorcycle gang in a way. And they carved their way through Europe. Some of them wound up in the UK. They carved their way through Europe wound up in the Iberian Peninsula, and the Neolithic Iberians could not defend themselves from this group. And within about 100 years, the Yamnaya had killed all of the men in Iberia and clearly mated with the women. The Iberians were not able to maintain their freedom. And so this idea that you, you have to defend yourself against a group like the Yamnaya is integral to maintaining a free society. And now it's very different with international law and, you know, et cetera. These are modern you know, we live in modern democratic states that have alliances and et cetera. But if you think in terms of the, the past thousands or tens of thousands of, year, of years of human history, your freedom came from the fact that you could defend yourself. And if you couldn't, your freedom was at risk. But what's, what's really interesting about humans, unlike any other mammal that I know of, is that a smaller individual or a smaller group can actually defeat a larger one. 
right? And that's true in one-on-one combat. I looked at mixed martial arts and boxing and also true in warfare. In, in, in the early 1600s, the Ottoman Empire, the most powerful military in the world at the time, invaded Montenegro, the sort of wild mountain territory. And they outnumbered the Montenegrins 12 to 1. And they went in there and the Montenegrins just destroyed them. And they did that over and over and over again. And that the Montenegrins maintained their freedom by defeating a much larger force. And that ability is unique to humans and it's integral. I mean, the, the, you know, obviously the Taliban did that with the United, first with the English in the 1800s and then with the Russians in the 1980s and then with the United States. Like we were not able to defeat them and they were, you know, a lightly armed force. Some of them didn't even have boots. They had no air force or artillery and we still could not beat them. And that is unique to humans. And that's in some ways connected to the strength of the bonds that bind people. And often on this podcast, we're talking to people about the kind of crisis of liberal democracy. And and I think that part of that crisis is the way in which we underestimated people's need for belonging and that belonging is part of people's idea of freedom. We, we kind of felt, well, if you have choice as an individual and you have more money to spend, that that, that is freedom. But but I think this notion is that to feel free, you need to feel safe. And to feel safe, you need to feel you're part of something bigger than yourself. Absolutely. And, you know, our sense of emotional safety reflects uh, the reality of our physical safety. So if you're in a group and you feel like you're part of that group, the feelings are an indicator that you're actually, that you belong to something bigger than yourself. And that what it will want from, what that group will want from you is to abandon your own particular self-interest in times of crisis, Right. So if you're in a pl- an American or any kind of platoon from any military in combat in Afghanistan or elsewhere, the expectation is that the individual men in that platoon, the individual soldiers in that platoon will not be completely self-preserving. Right. That they will act to defend the entire group, even if it means that their life's in danger. And I know because I've been in those situations that that selflessness, that sort of transcendent selflessness is actually kind of intoxicating. Like it, it produces a very profound reaction in people and they don't want to give it up. It's ironically in combat, in a group like that, where you're, where you're mostly concerned with the rest of the group, not with yourself, is when some people actually feel the safest. And that has very profound, very old evolutionary roots. So then we move to the final movement of the symphony, which is think. And I understood this when I say understood, I'm just, I just, I just love reading it. But, but I guess that some of the thoughts that it summoned were, firstly, the power of freedom as an idea, as a galvanizing idea. But then, secondly, the idea that we need to think about the arrangements of societies or groups which best enable freedom. That that's something. And one of the reasons I, I really like that idea is that is that something I've argued with people like me on the kind of progressive wing for many years is that. We're wrong to argue for equality as a good. I'm not sure people want equality as a good. What we should be arguing for is equality as a means to freedom. And when I say equality, I don't mean total equality, but that unless societies have a sufficient level of equality or unless they have not too much inequality, then for most people, they will not be truly free. So we should see equality not as an end, but as a means to freedom. And I, I think that that's an argument I, I sensed in this in this part of the book as well. Yeah, I mean, no society has a completely sort of flat profile in the sense that everyone has the same 
skills, the same assets, the same amount of resources. It's not biologically possible. So when you when you're talking about a modern democracy, what you're really talking about is that everyone has equal rights, and that's that's an absolute that that cannot that cannot waver. And it's very important that when people have equal rights, that very powerful people, billionaires, presidents, generals, do not have extra rights, right? That that those people cannot get away with breaking the laws that everyone else is held accountable by. They can't get away with breaking those laws without being punished. And, you know, obviously during the during the Middle Ages in Europe, the royalty, the kings and queens essentially were not bound by any laws. I mean, they could they could steal, they could rape, they could plunder, they could murder, and there were no consequences. They had extra rights. That is inconceivable in a hunter-gatherer society. I mean, you know, we evolved in groups of humans, evolved in groups of 30, 40, 50 people for most of our most of our evolution, most of our history. And in those small survival groups, that kind of disproportionate use of power would be punished immediately, usually by death. I mean, the, the, the most common reason for capital punishment for killing a member of the group in hunter-gatherer society is abuse of, uh, abuse of authority. Well, obviously, that was rampant in, in, in European society. And that kind of abuse started with agriculture. When you can accumulate grain, when you can accumulate money, when you can pay for large armies that can suppress people, all of a sudden you have people that are very, very powerful dominating everyone else. Theoretically, that stopped with democracy. And in a proper democracy, our political leaders and everybody else, they have to abide by the same laws. And when the framers of the U.S. Constitution wrote the documents that started this country, they were very careful to include themselves in the system of accountability. They were very powerful, right? These, these elite, elite members of American society, they did not exempt themselves from the consequences of, of breaking the law. And you make a powerful point, which is that it's hard to respect leaders who are unwilling to make sacrifices themselves. And I mean, it's a simple point, but I... You know, my day job is a is leader of an organization. I've, I've been in leadership positions for many years. And that simple notion that if you're not willing to make sacrifices on behalf of the people that you lead, you should, it's very difficult to expect them to respect and trust you. I thought that was a powerful point and one that, that is missed out, actually, of an awful lot of accounts of leadership. Right. I mean, leadership would rather not know that, of course. But I mean, as I say in the book, leadership that does not expose itself to, to the same risks as the people they lead isn't leadership, it's opportunism. And I would say most politicians fall into that. I'd say most corporate leaders fall into that. Ironically, the um, officer corps in the US military, and I'm sure in the UK as well, it pains them enormously that they are giving orders and telling soldiers to run risks that they themselves do not have to run because they're stuck behind a computer. It really bothers them enormously. And that is that is true leadership. And what I would say is that, the, I mean, I've seen this in combat, that the lieutenants and the captains who are willing to take risk in combat with bullets flying, but will, their own men will say, sir, please get down. We need you. Like, you can't take a bullet for us. That's real leadership. I cite a man named Connolly who was the leader of the uh, Easter Rising in Dublin in 1916. And he was incredibly brave and his aides were constantly sort of dragging him out of gunfire because they were afraid he was going to get hit. And they, they were like, sir, we need you. And he was hit twice by bullets and then executed after about a week when the Brits caught him and they, they killed about, about a dozen of, these, of the leaders. And so basically the leaders of this uprising were proper leaders. They were willing to die for the cause. And if your leader is not willing to die for you, 
he or she is not a leader. I mean, in ancient human terms, that that's the absolute truth. Yeah, and I, that reminded me of conversations I've had with military folk about how they feel about remote warfare, about drone warfare, that they understand the rationale for it and the effectiveness of it, but their sense that it's not right. You know, they can't escape the sense that it's not right to conduct warfare in a way that you're not risking something yourself. Um, and I thought that was a connection there to that. C- can I turn to another aspect of the book? And, and this is kind of a, a bit personal for me, really, which is that I love the materiality of the book. This is what comes from the, the rhythm of the book, the walk, the description of of your walk and the trains whizzing past and the camps that you set up and the the ways in which you find food or whatever it, it might be. And it reminded me of a, another American author whose work I love, uh, Matthew Crawford, who, who writes a lot about materiality in terms of manual crafts. You know, he's somebody who combines being a kind of philosopher with running a motorcycle repair shop. I am someone who's reached a quite a ripe age in life and has has come to realize that the absence of materiality in my life that, that it's been an enormous gap I, and I'm trying now I you, know, I you know Sebastian I put your book down and I texted my friend and I said I want to go hiking and he said okay great I'll, I'll book some Airbnb places and I said no 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 I want to go hiking you know I want to get a tent I want to I want to kind of make a fire, you know, and I've started outdoor swimming and, and, and stuff like that. And materiality is so important. And I think it's a part of freedom as well. You don't talk about that explicitly, but I do think it's part of freedom. And I think one of the problems of the modern world and one of the reasons perhaps for our sparring levels of mental illness is that for so many people, there is no materiality to their day-to-day existence. Yeah, I mean, I think generally when you do things that were adaptive in our in our evolution as a species, it feels good. It resonates. So when you hold a child, right, there's a reason that millions of Americans hunt, even though they don't necessarily need the food that provided by that animal. There is something deeply satisfying in enacting a process that humans survived on for hundreds of thousands of years, sitting around a fire with some people that you're close to running risks, you know, I mean, all of these things feel good and they feel good partly because we were adapted for them because they were required by our evolution. And so what you have is a modern society that for the most, most people, for the most part, are interchangeable, right? No individual person is absolutely necessary. Um, they're sort of parts of a machine and they have very little physical challenges in terms of their daily survival. Society has outsource all those survival needs. It's mechanized those survival needs. So that stuff just kind of happens and you pay for it with your job where you're replaceable, but then you're actually not providing for your own survival in a direct sense. And then on top of that, it is a socially alienated system where people do not live in communities of 30 to 40 individuals the way we evolved for you know, hopefully you have a happy family, but those happy families are often completely disconnected from the other families around them in the neighborhood. And that's a deeply inhuman way to live. So you, so you have replaceability, you have no contact with the physical means of your own survival, with the incredible satisfaction of being engaged in those things. You're probably not getting much exercise because you're working indoors at a desk. And on top of it, you're socially disconnected from everyone, maybe even from your children who are all locked in their own rooms on their social media. You want to create depressed humans, you know what I mean? Depressed, alcoholic, addictive humans. That's how you do it. And that, I think, 
Sebastian, is a theme for me in, in, in your work. And it's that, that in a sense, as somebody once said, we, we are trying to traverse a modern world with a prehistorically evolved brain. And that there is in your work a kind of sense that, you know, we have evolved to have a set of needs, which the modern world is not designed to fulfill in us. And that it is only in moments of extremity, of deprivation, even if even if it's self-imposed deprivation, like you on your walk, that, that we can connect to those feelings that we evolved to have. And I think there's something very powerful about that. And I wonder whether there's anything that we can do about it. If I could wave a magic wand and, and have one policy, I've not thought for a long time, it would be that every child should, should spend a week in their childhood under the stars, out, you know, and with no mobile phone, with nothing, in the countryside, cooking on a fire. Every There is not a child, I don't think, who wouldn't, by the end of the second or the third day, be feeling feelings that they hadn't had before. And that is a theme in your work, it seems to me, that there's very deep needs in us, which it's very hard to fulfill in the modern world. Yeah, it's very hard. I mean, the modern world has, has solved many of our traditional survival challenges, and that's a good thing, right? And you know, modern medicine saves lives every minute of every day. And, you know, I mean, you know, they're, they're, modern society is a kind of miracle, uh, but it does come with these downsides. It's not physical enough. You're, you're unconnected from the things that keep you alive and you're unconnected from other people. And uh, there are ways to fix that. I knew someone very well, grew up in, in communist Bulgaria. And, you know, the teenagers in the summers would go to work camp and they would work in the fields, right? It was sort of state-sponsored work camp, but you know, it was very physical and it was very communal. I mean, the boys were in one barracks and the girls were in the other, but of course there was all kinds of business between them. And it was this sort of teenage heaven and they were doing something useful. And then they were training them on rifles in case the Americans invaded and whatever, like they were, they understood they were part of a society and society needed them. And while they were doing all of that, they got to socialize with each other. And when you're 16 years old, what's better than that, right? And you know, that affluent Western society doesn't have anything like that is really, it's a tragedy for us. You know, it's not a privilege that, that teenagers don't have to work. It's a tragedy for them. Well, Sebastian, we uh, here in Britain, I guess it's the same in America, we're about to approach the summer holiday period where many of us won't be able to go away or go to places might want to go. But I would say to, to all the people listening to this program, if you do want to escape for a few hours, you want to be taken out of where you are, then I can think of a few better ways of doing that than reading Sebastian Junger's Freedom, an absolutely wonderful book. Sebastian, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you very much. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit thersa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.